to get out of bed, it definitely helps knowing that the cause is bigger than I am and I'm getting out of bed for more than just myself. Um, and it's not just about getting out of bed, but it does help the drive for the passion project with, with the South Pacific cacao that Brian and I are doing. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Cacao is one of the most sought after and traded commodities on the planet. Mostly grown in third world countries in tropical zones, it is consumed in large amounts in the first world in the form of chocolate. There are not too many of us on the planet that aren't lured by the sweet, indulgent experience that chocolate delivers. But as we come to grips with problems in our food chain, sustainability and ethics, what impact is that having on cacao? Jessica Petamont is the owner of Chocolate Artisan and the co-owner and director of South Pacific Cacao. Jessica, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's well, it's great to, to talk to you. You've built an amazing <laughs> career around an incredible product and you're one of Australia's best. What, what lured you to the sweet <laughs> side of things? Oh, that's really kind of you. Um, yeah, look, I love all food. I love savoury. I was a chef first. And um, and then, you know, as a chef, they always sort of see you as an all-rounder making petit fours to dinner rolls. And that's sort of, I think, how you start stretching your other muscles in the food chain. And I always, I always like all of it. I still like making, you know, pasta and, you know, smoking meats and, and things like that. But uh, as a, a full-time job, you know, I, I find myself very much in that sweet realm, even though they do use cacao for some savoury things. I just mm. finished decanting and scraping out a machine where we've done a spiced hot chocolate bar, and it's wow. got chilli, cinnamon, vanilla, smoked salt, black pepper. It's a 75%, and um, the beans are from an area called Waimarae in Makira in the Solomon Islands. So all of our farmers are um, award-winning generally like so it's all focused on the farmers we we don't mm. grow it ourselves we do have a connection in the farms um brian atkin our other uh, co-owner co-director he has some farms in the souls his father's originally from there i've been over there worked over there done women and youth programs over there um obviously not going anywhere at the moment <laughs> and the the trip last year's fallen through along with everybody else's but uh yeah no i just you know, love what I do and, and do what I love. So, you know, they talk about that. Do what you like and you don't feel like you work a day. Don't get me wrong. I'm not afraid of hard work. Definitely grind. <laughs> Lots of grinding. <laughs> We've got machines that run through the night grinding. Um, yeah. There's lots of elements to talk about um, yeah. with you. Yeah. But Food. the connection that you have with the South Pacific, can we, do, can we start with that? Tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, there's a lot of lineages why it made so much sense. Um, obviously, the smaller global mile footprint, we are growing it in the Daintree area, as many would know. It's still a new uh, commodity to be doing that there. And obviously, people are taking care of that there. I lived and worked um, in Hawaii in a cacao plantation. I lived in one for a while. My transport wow. was a golf buggy. <laughs> it's the coolest. <laughs> um so, you know, you definitely have experience doing it in the first world country situation with harvesting and so forth as well. 
But uh, like you said in, in your intro, it is often lesser developed countries, considered third world countries, um, lower social economic situations. And they've got other ingredients we've been bringing over, like the gnarly nut, which I, I just absolutely love and adore. It's a bit like a pine nut cross cashew, maybe touch of macadamia. And for years, we were bringing it from their duty-free in our suitcases back because no one was bringing it here. And and I'm just like, this is a crime. And I've used it at fine foods and, and different trade shows and all the mm. chefs, which are international, like, this is unreal. And I'm like, yes, these countries haven't had maybe a voice or an opportunity in the whole supply chain to be able to bring their product to a global presence, which we have had many blessings mm. um, in, in Australia. So... You know, we, we brought in 14 kilos last year and, um, you know, it might seem like a small amount, but for a little artisan chocolate shop that has a lot of other ingredients, you know, mm. freshness is paramount and, and also your funds to, to do that. But also getting back to the whole South Pacific situation, not just the global miles, um, the quality, like their beans are winning awards internationally, uh, you know, so that it's, it's a very good quality product. Um, mm. They're very small when you compare a massive amount of cacao coming from like the Ivory Coast and Ghana and Africa and all these sorts of areas. Uh, but they're anywhere that equator belt for those people listening that aren't aware. You just look at that equator belt and that's very much where cacao is. Um, if you look at sort of the world map and look at Hawaii and look at Australia, you sort of got the top and the bottom of those equator bands of where it stops growing because it is quite affected by its environment so if you see it anywhere else it's probably in a you know like a plant conservatory where they've recreated its living environments um, so we've also brought in um, vanilla from manis undeodorized cocoa butter from png and uh, in bougainville from queen emma and also the powder which is just sensational because you get a better quality bean, you can make uh, undeodorized cocoa butters and undutched cocoa powders and have a really delicious product to put in your sponges or, you know, whatever other products you're, you're making with it. If you've got a good ingredient, one ingredient, there's nothing it can stand behind, whereas the bulk commodity beans, so there's different sort of beans. We're in the premium mm. sun-dried naturally organic bean market, which of course you pay a higher price for. That's another thing that we're promoting as a part of being, I guess, a voice for the people in this region. And I shut my cooking school, um, not because I knew COVID was coming, which is kind of cool that I did that, but because <laughs> I saw that, I know, who knew, the tsunami. Um, I sort of just saw the energy that I was putting into essentially pampering the privilege that can pay you know how many hundreds of dollars just for a group experience um, you know yes I still do privates yes I still do some consulting in that way but even with um, that that COVID thing that happened we haven't done a class at our workshop since mid-March um, wow. that's a whole other yeah I know and look imagine if I had the school I'd have a whole location that is essentially gathering dust um, but I looked at it as the energy, we only, well, I believe, you know, at least on this earth, I've only got one life. So to get out of bed, it definitely helps knowing that the cause is bigger than I am and I'm getting out of bed for more than just myself. 
Um, and it's not just about getting out of bed, but it does help the drive for the passion project with, with the South Pacific cacao that Brian and I are doing. So he provides beans around the world, um, Europe, East, North America, other parts of Australia, New Zealand, to, to bean-to-bar craft chocolate makers. That uh, There's the purists that are all about two-ingredient chocolate, which is essentially just beans, no extra cocoa butter, and then also the sugar, just plain mm. sugar. But, I mean, there are people that eat 100% and there's people that eat, eat roasted beans. So you've got, you've, you've got a lot to... We've probably got about... 16 different flavored bars just from its origins all wow. of our stuff is te- all of our machinery is technically vegan we don't use any soy lecithin's binding agents um stabilizers and we do play around with the raw organic bundaberg sugar it was the only organic um raw sugar that i could find in the country and obviously we're we cusp on a part of the south pacific mm. but also we we love using a lot of australian ingredients as well we're lucky in australia that our diverse land can create so many ingredients um, if people mm. give it a go as 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 we all know it's quite incredible um, with with all of our sort of environment and then uh what else are we doing yeah we've got we use a lot of coconut instead so we brought in some beautiful island coconut we found all the coconut majority of the coconut getting supplied even organic uh, in Australia was generally coming from the Philippines or Sri Lanka and there's nothing wrong with that but it doesn't really go with the whole South Pacific theme and they've got some really beautiful coconut over there and a lot of coconut Pacific products coming over you know it could be the virgin coconut oil it could be the flour it could be coconut comes in so many um, formats mm. even more so than ever in our awareness so we got some um, beautiful island coconut over and, and the flavor and the fragrance and the freshness, it's just, it's unreal. Uh, it's really quite spectacular. It does pay off when you go to all this effort of importing your own things. Mm. Um, one of the things we noticed when COVID hit, a lot of people said, how's your supply chain of getting ingredients? And we actually touched wood and hadn't been affected because we brought it all in ourselves. Um, the stuff that we were having trouble with would have been more ingredients that we didn't bring in ourselves and our suppliers supplied us with. And so every five items we might ask for from anybody, the average was sort of getting three to four of those ingredients. And then there's wow. that, that chase to get the other sort of um, 20, 40%. And, and because, you know, you might have a variety of suppliers getting different ingredients, especially with CA, Chocolate Artisan, we... We do a lot of like our signature Christmas cakes. We've just had Christmas. We do the anglaise, the cherries. We prepare our dried fruits a year in advance in all the brandy, the honey, all local. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of other things that's, that CA does that SPC doesn't. So, you know, you're managing all of that. And, and before COVID happened, we basically got the keys to this new place mid-November after all the you know you're looking for this place you're looking for that place something falls through it's not the right time so on and so forth and you pa- had three locations so I was packing up one putting storage into another running another getting back to work pretty much full-time after um, having a baby and so you know that's life right <laughs> what's happening now well, we can get into um, yeah. the impact that COVID had shortly, but I just want to touch on the South Pacific a bit more. Yeah. And, you know, you said that they're producing award-winning cacao. Yes. What, what, what makes that. it so special? 
Look, it's very important from the very beginning and yeah, I'm going to talk like a farmer. It's the soil, the soil, its environment, you know, how is the plants being looked after? It's a tree and if it's in good stead, it can produce up to twice a year. It can fruit and flower at the same time, which is considered unusual for some, um, some plants. Also, it can produce from the branches and the trunk, which is also considered quite unusual for some plants. Mm. It's quite a unique, you know, that fruit of the God tree. And so with the South Pacific, it grows natural. It grows wild there, just like all these other things that can can give them good um, good stead with some sort of uh, return commodity wise. So if it's, if it's growing well and it's harvested at the right time, you know, not underripe, not overripe, at the right time, then it goes straight into the fermentation stage. And that, you know, look, every, you'll read a lot of textbooks, you hear a lot of info, but it, you need to give the time that it needs. So if it's three days or it's a week, you know, that is up to it being handled at the time. It needs to happen right away at the farm, generally, or not far away. Once it's gone through the fermentation stage, which has to be watched closely and evenly, then sun drying is optimal. This is another really big thing. I'm glad you asked about it. One of the big problems that I noticed is with, you know, not just the South Pacific, but underdeveloped countries is smoke drying. It taints the beans. It generally Mm. needs to be stoked by a human themselves. So breathing in the smoke. I mean, chefs back in the day working off coal ovens, wood-fired ovens permanently were, were passing away of an average of 45 years old. Like, the smoke wow. does not improve your health. So these smoke dryers need to be running, you know, sometimes for multiple days on end, day and night. So someone's got to breathe that in. They've got to chop wood down. That's not sustainable for the environment either. And the smoke dryers have a, a lifespan as well. So there's nothing there that is good for sustainability, really, and they get a very poor price so bulk commodity beans often just get used for massive commercial commercial chocolate. So think a lot of sugar, a lot of milk powder, a lot of, you know, emulsifiers, binding agents to make that stuff work. Almost chocolate confectionery work. Um, we don't need to name names here, you know. I definitely don't need any letters in the mail. Um, also cocoa butter. Cocoa butter is sought after by the beauty industry hair, uh, makeup, not just to mention other food. So Kuvacha chocolate has extra cocoa butter added. So the natural fat content of a bean can be anywhere. A lean bean is sort of 20, 30%, 30% definitely a lean bean percentage fat wise. And a a nice fatty bean would be around 50 to 60% natural fat content. Uh, You can only get that checked if you get it you know, checked, you know, in the sort of that lab situation, you know, some people go off um, claiming all sorts of things and people start claiming lineage as well. But going back to the island, so let's say we've done a fantastic fermentation, the drying situation. So uh, naturally sun-dried is definitely premium or you can use a Grain Pro bubble dryer where it produces um, air that blows over it. Because this is the thing, where most of the cacao grows is quite tropical. So flash rains, um, you know, all sorts of situations like this, very humid. Uh, this is very important in, in controlling this, this process. So mm. they have some permanent huts or they pour it, um, put it over covers um, or they'll have it out in the beds and push it under when the rain comes. Um, but with the Grain Pro bubble dryer and Grain Pro produce hermetically sealed bags. I'll get to that stuff later. 
but it's worldwide available. They use it a lot for coffee and other grain commodities um, for storage and, and things like this. So they produced a Grain Pro bubble dryer. So you put the beans that need drying. If you have the extra um, charger, which takes the sun for solar panels and then produces you know, some storage of the energy so it can run a few days, which is what might be needed when it's raining and it's nighttime and so on, and, and plus a lot of these countries, they're working off diesel power generators at the best of times for the best hotels. So electricity is, is another thing that people need to think about in these sorts of um, you know, countries. So if you've got a, drain, a Grain Pro bubble dryer, it just blows the air over it. You sort of rake it underneath the cover to keep it turning over so it's drying evenly. And that can also yield a very, very good quality bean as well. So natural sun dry or this way is going to give you a really good premium bean. A lot of the characteristics of the genetics and the terroir will be able to come through. Then once it's dried properly, which is at about 8% moisture content, if it's too low when the beans are traveling, you know, they can just break and they'll end up being just a bunch of husk and nibs at the final stop once they get thrown around mm. here, there, everywhere. Um, and then it's up to the person at the other end who is generally roasting and, and then takes it, takes it to their next step. So we're receiving it dried in the Grain Pro hermetically sealed bags to prevent, you know, mould development, moth development, any sort of bug situation, reabsorption of moisture. So it's, it, we sort of work with everybody over there um, closely uh, with all the farmers that we're working with and so forth and that community about the education. So education is obviously quite key here. And when we do soil chock every year, which obviously didn't happen last year, um, I don't know about this year, but stay tuned, where they bring together, uh, it's almost like a conference. Farmers, people come worldwide, they enter their beans, their beans get judged, they, ta they take the top 10 now, top 20, turn it into chocolate, judge it again, um, and, you know, that then themselves can win awards and, and, and props and equipment for their farms and, and so on. But also the recognition and also the education. So a lot of these people are coming from little towns in the middle of nowhere. One of the beans that we get is um, from an, an island region called Tomoto. And the farmer, his name's Philip Lepping. He's one of the winners from 2018. And when the Spaniards came looking for King Solomon's treasure back in the 15th, 16th century, they landed on this little island called Tomoto and planted some of the original lineage beans. Um, so wow. it's quite a historical... We got a couple of bags last year and it's, and it's so, so, so different compared to, say, another farmer's beans. All of our bags are divided, all of our batches, everything's, everything's recorded. So it's kind of going to that craft wine, craft beer, craft coffee sort of movement where people are like, where is it coming from? What makes it different? But if you don't do the correct fermentation, you don't do the correct harvesting, the storing, in those sorts of environments, it can reabsorb moisture, get mould, and then you've got a problem. So there's quite a lot of work that has to happen and has to be done before you even receive a good quality bean. Uh, that the end person's paying for before they turn it into anything. Well, you've had chocolate artisan for uh, well over a decade. Mm. Um, what, what's what's some of the uh, highlights of that time with that business that you've had? Yeah, it's um, 
it's been a, a great platform as a journey, uh, working nationally and internationally now. Obviously, I'm just working in Sydney, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, send our, we send our chocolate now in the mail, which I'd never done in 13 years. And to me, wow. the concept was like putting my food in a takeaway container and booting it out the door. Like psychologically, you've got a lot of things to overcome because... Well, there is choices, but really that attitude of you, you don't have a choice. How are you going to get it to people when you shut your doors for four months and you don't have anyone come in the front door? But yeah, highlights, definitely having an opportunity to work overseas um, and, you know, have a business where people can contact you and, and you can, you know, potentially collaborate with other businesses, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoy all the trade shows, which we don't get to do at the moment, um, working with different businesses like that, different machinery. Um, it's, it's quite fun. We've got a lot of Italian FBM machinery here and Unox um, for ovens and stuff, cold line for... And just using some of the best equipment uh, on the market is, is quite a beautiful thing. It's you know, you've, you've got other staff members here all the time. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's great. You know, you work really hard and you appreciate what you've got and, you know, you get to train other people and get to meet other people, try new things. Um, yeah, it's, it, I've really enjoyed it. We've, we've done a lot of things. We brought out a women's chef's jacket range, which, you know, because most of my life I was just wearing a size small men's and my shoulders were down at my elbows and, <laughs> it was just, I don't know, I, I came up in the industry when my employers were getting benefits from the government because I was a female. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of things you come wow. to learn about uh, with, with the trade. And I'm still friends with my first employers. I saw them only last week for coffee by chance. Um, they're, they're, I'm friends with them. You know, they were the ones that took time with me and showed me the ropes when, when I was 15. And that was, um, you know, you learn a lot of, a lot of life lessons, but yeah, it's, I kind of feel like chocolate artisan will be there when Armageddon comes and goes, like I'll still be in the corner <laughs> peddling, making chocolate for people, but the, everything, all my spare time and all my time that I make, um, for, for the social, is, is quite important to me. Um, I sort of look at that as a legacy that can continue when I'm not here. Um, and that is, is obviously quite, quite meaningful. Yeah. Is there something that, <laughs> is there something that you produce that, uh, really stands out and typifies sort of what you do with chocolate? Ah, uh, I've got a few, we've got a lot of products. I try to please everyone in the sense that we try to cater all food groups um, whether it's white milk dark fruity nutty uh, unusual um, you know we try to cater and we do custom so we custom make stuff for people as well whether it's white labeled or a co-collaboration um, etc etc we were doing a lot of great work before covid hit as well but like there's some people that aren't even in business anymore that we were talking mm. to so you know there's the good the bad and the ugly but everything everyone's just trying to move move through what it is um one of the things that we're very proud of is our christmas um fruit cake pudding 
It's a total bastardization of a cake and a pudding. Um, <laughs> if we put this in the Easter show, I would be disqualified and everyone would tell me to quit my day job. Um, but it, for me, you can heat it up like a pudding. You can have it like a cake. We prepare the fruits a year in advance. It's all local honey. It's single origin wheat that we will use, um, you know, the herby spices, peppy say butter, the cacao husk from the bean. The husk is probably the pot of gold, really, that we're sitting on. It is the most beautiful, fragrant, delicious, nutritious um, product. And some people think of it as a byproduct. But, you know, there's this expression in, in Japanese called multi-nai, where it's it's almost like a, an equilibrium and a synergy of they're both really the same. Um, one, the chocolate, the cacao nib could be considered the byproduct in this case. So you produce about, you know, 15 to 25% um, of, of husk from the bean when you do the roasting, cracking, winnowing process. So cracking and winnowing is where you separate the husk from the outside, from the nib, which is the inside bit. And I put it in this really yummy spiced cookie biscuit business that mm. I make. And I put it in the cake and, you know, some friends put it in their panettone crust recently. And I've had another friend put it in his sourdough and brioche recipe. And we're working with some beer brewery craft people that are putting the husk in the the vats when they do their, their sort of... Um, preparation to make beer whiskey as well i mean you can make tea with it it's a lovely herbal barley sort of clear tea where it's full of theobromine full of you know good for mental clarity and focus going back to that superfood ingredient um, that it's quite well known for a lot of people think there's a lot of caffeine in chocolate but it's actually full of theobromine there's trace amounts of caffeine but particularly in the husk um yeah not not much at all so very, very good for you. You mentioned that uh, in November you uh, got the keys to a, a new facility and uh, you opened a retail at the end of January. What, what sort of impact has this, has this sort of whole COVID pandemic had on your operations? Yeah, um, yeah, 2019, 2019, yeah, we got the keys and we started wholesale production second of jan end of jan we started formal retail and um you know because we had to transition the other businesses and you've got to like your monopoly and jigsaw puzzle of tools and equipment and staff and yourself and so on um and just sort of make a smooth transition and we were tracking really well absolute sunshine rainbows and lollipops <laughs> it was just Super grand, super, super grand. And then obviously the whole world's hit by a bus and, um, you know, the government's like, help flatten the curve. And I was like, right, okay, well, Easter's on the horizon. It's mid-March. Having our doors open will not help flatten the curve. So, you know, what can we do from our little position? Um, And that was to not let people physically in. And, um, and we all went home for a week and then I was like, I need to go back in there. But we had a lot of staff with pre-medical curses. So, you know, due diligence. I'm like, you need to stay home and you need to stay home and you need to stay home. And I know you'll want to come help. Um, so I was essentially, 
you know, isolating at home, going to work on my own, working here on my own till to midnight sometimes, and then and then going back again. So I felt I felt pretty safe. I felt like, you know, what we were producing was was pretty safe. But we fortunately got um, picked up by the Sunrise Show, and they obviously were wanting to to spread some goodwill amongst the people and were focusing on businesses. I don't I don't remember how they got hold of me, but. They came on Good Friday and the weather guys here and, you know, the whole crew's here and we're all social distancing. We're all talking about who's allowed to stand where and the film crew and everyone had to be there. And those guys, I mean, they get scrutinized by the whole country watching the show. So they're like, okay, well, you know, if you're here and you pass to me on this and it was was interesting because we've done this stuff before, but not during, during that situation either. But we got, fortunately... With Easter, we got um, a big surge anyway because people kind of went, oh, Jess has gone online, never done it before. Like, we finally... It's good. I will continue to do this. Uh, We just have to watch the weather. But we got another surge from that. Um, Broadsheet did a piece on us. That was uh, good timing. That didn't happen till later because everyone sort of got swamped with the situation. And then Mm. food, SBS Food did a thing. And, you know, it's wonderful to have people take a genuine interest and contact and we and we do something or they want to do something but to get it happening during this time was even more of a blessing every time because we've we've just started something we weren't getting any support um, from the government you know we weren't expecting anything nothing really rolled out for a while anyway uh, every week it feels like a small little book and a chapter in the greater series so, you know, our little hot seat had had plenty going on and I think with our small team, we all really care about each other and care about what we're doing and then our little communities around that with our families and so forth. So, you know, yeah, we were listening to all the news and, and what's good and what's not and, you know, we have all of the new procedures in place um, with what we're allowed to do now. Um, but, yeah, we'll keep... We'll keep doing online. I don't know when we'll do classes again. Uh, most of our customers came from around the country and sometimes overseas. We, we do a lot of professional courses as well as just the factory tour situation. Um, mm. You know, it's not really worth it in the grand schemes and we didn't want to put people out. Like we offered refunds right away or whatever people wanted to do that were already already booked in um, we would do a lot of off-sites, like I'd taught at other schools or or other, you know, sort of TAFE and, and trade shows and so forth. Um, just sort of got to go with it, go with the flow and, and see where it takes us. You can't hold on to running water. Uh, so you just, we just got to sort of go with it and see how we can um, make the best best of it. We, we did a lot of subscriptions as well, and that's another thing we're rolling out this year is our you know, become a chocolatier at home. We did um, we did some for for Christmas, and we did about eighty, um, and people could do add-ons. Wow. So they got to have that experience at home. We did a pre-recorded video. We gave them a link. Um, they got to watch it privately, and I took them through how to make this chocolate Christmas tree using the social chocolate, using Australian freeze-dried fruit, which is produced in Australia, very fresh. They're really awesome. Um, using Australian projects, pr- produce um, and produced in the Yarra Valley, freeze-dried. Delicious, delicious stuff. Um, so everything that we used 
often has a lot of providence and integrity and we leave ourselves really open to try new things and learn more things and it's one of the most exciting things when you get a new ingredient um, as a chef and, and get to try it. And it's like trying new food, isn't it, you know, culturally? You mentioned a little earlier your interest in chocolate came from wanting to stretch your muscles uh, as a chef and you've also liked to stretch your muscles in another way throughout your life with martial arts. <laughs> that <sounds> hilarious. <laughs> uh, okay, I didn't know we were going to segue here, but that's not unusual. Everyone loves to talk about um, my background uh, as a professional fighter, yeah? Yeah. I did get to represent <laughs> Australia in a few different disciplines. And, uh, you know, I have a, yeah, I've got one of those black belts as well. Um, don't know how I would do these days. <laughs> I don't really get to train like I used to, but I started off in martial arts when I actually started cooking professionally. I started with them both at 15. Obviously, wow. no correlation between the two. I always did competitive sports as a child. Like, I did everything. I just sort of threw myself into everything. I was on the softball team doing reps and I was like, okay, what are the rules? You know, cause I'd go to tryouts and I'd get in because I could fudge my way athletically through a lot of stuff <laughs> and, um, and just have a good time. But martial arts, I did gymnastics as a kid. I didn't know I was supposed to be tall. So by 14, when a female reaches her peak, she starts snapping bones and popping knees and things like that and popping shoulders and stuff. A boy is, is 18. So uh, anyway, so I realized I couldn't get to do that anymore and I started growing taller and taller. And then then it took me about a year to find a sport where I felt that complete physical exhaustion, like every part of my body mm. used itself like it used to for so much of my, my younger life. And yeah, it, was, um, it started off with kickboxing. And I ended up doing Muay Thai. Uh, I ended up fighting internationally and, you know, getting prize money, which is not much. But, you know, the novelty, (laughs) it's it's a bit of a novelty. And then um, I always loved, uh, I I was introduced to Pankration, Pankratio, which is one of the first Olympic sports that started in ancient Greece, which, of course, wrestling is a part of that. So stand up. It's like stand-up submission tool takedown. So a lot of these, you know, different jiu-jitsus and, and karates and things like that, they've all got elements of a lot of them. Um, and, and then obviously it involves submissions as well, like all your takedowns and stuff. So that was quite cool. It's like a physical game of chess, you know, like a, with, with wrestling to me anyway. Um, so there's some really smart people. Like <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a good sport. And... You know, look, Olympic wrestling, I didn't think I had the the body type for that. I always thought wrestlers were short and stocky. There's actually quite a few famous wrestlers that are really quite tall. I, did, I just showed you how young I was. I'm just going to put that disclaimer out there. But then I'd retired. Um, I'd snapped a knee. I had my ACL replaced just in training. I'm um, just a, you know, when you've, you've you train with the younger ones that don't know so much. You can have freak injuries. It happens. It's like wild cards. So anyway, I recovered from that. That was cool. Um, and then I just thought I'd train for fitness. And just like most fighters, they come out of retirement. And the reason for me was the 
The coach that taught on Saturdays, he used to be the scout for the USSR back in the day for wrestling. I mean, everyone knows Russia's like, you know, Russia's Russia with wrestling. So I, um, you know, he sort of pulled me aside. He did his, it was like a sermon. Classes would go for three, four hours and he'd have someone to translate. (laughs) He knew some English, but he did. He'd always have one of his Russian boys there to translate. And then... um, you know, after 20 minutes of, I had to get, I had to be briefed before he would even let me on the mat to train because he didn't know my face. I never, what chefs gets to go to training on a Saturday morning? I mean, like it just doesn't happen. So anyway, I happened to show up and I'm running around on the mat, going through the motions, you know, let me 20 minutes into the warm up, and he pulled me aside and he's like, how old are you? And I was like, 29. He's like, you go to the next Olympics. And I just was like, uh, you know, next few days you go to bed, you're thinking about what he said and, and next minute, you know, you, you train hardcore, no other disciplines for the same month, four months later, you go to Oceania in Samoa and you come third. Wow. <laughs> you just go, oh, you know. Um, so I did that till about 33 when I snapped um, a couple wow. of yeah, injuries. Exciting. I don't really think I had that many in my time, but I snapped a, a couple of things in my ankle at a Glasgow qualifier for the Commonwealth in Canberra. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to heal in time for, for Glasgow. So, you know, let's just, just live it up. Where's the glass of champagne or something? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, 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 have a good time. So now it's just really training for fitness if I can. With my well, spare time, we don't have enough spare time. <laughs> well, you've been a hell of a fighter, and now you're uh, standing up for the growers and people in the South yeah. Pacific and producers. Yeah. What, what's what's your hope with social uh, this year? Um, now that you've got it all off the ground and running, I know, I know. Well, I, I pretty much dedicated twelve months. Like I donate all my time, I donate all my equipment. Um, the social very much pays its way, like for its its beans and, you know, its staff and, and other sort of overheads that it has. But we definitely would like it to be uh, more established and on its own feet. And we sell online. We sell to some other uh, retailers. We do some white labelling. We do some um, wholesale for some other professionals. And then, um, obviously, we sell some stuff through the shops. We can't really do any experiences yet. That's off the cards for now but it can definitely um, still have a presence in education um, with the promotion of, of what we're doing. We can't go over there right now. That's sort of off the cards as well. Mm. But if we can keep building uh, a more steady platform, because, you know, there are still a lot of people that we can go and do an off-site experience for, for corporates or, or, or educational experiences for high schools or, or other children um, with understanding about, a lot of different potential conversations there with um, not just the social, but education about food and ingredients itself and um, that whole ethos of that cycle. There's, there's quite a bit, quite a bit there. Um, more uh, awareness and, uh, you know, we would like to, the, the more impact we can have, the more we can do, the more support that we can grow it, the the more people we can help faster. Um, it's a different time right now with um, the new COVID and not being able to go over and do 
those programs that we had done before. Mm. You know, maybe we can do some some things online. Like when I went over there, they were the the women and youth. They were pretty much just well, any of them in general were just using cocoa powder that was re-imported. I know people hearing that will kind of just be a bit beside themselves with that. Um, I was a bit beside myself with it myself. But when I went over there, uh, I taught them how to make like a granita out of the pulp, which is super tropical mangosteen lychee mm-hmm. rambutan profile because of course they don't have an ice cream machine like at first i started talking to the hotel about doing a sorbet i'm like has anyone got a machine and they didn't i'm like right we're going to do a granita this is something you can do yourself um, and showed them how to do that and and that was obviously quite mind-blowing for them um, then i took some of the nibs and the gnarly nut and the local coconut and made a brittle with it and then that was quite delicious to them but then i blitzed it up and made like a super rustic, uh, nutty, chocolatey, coconutty profile paste, which to you and I, we could eat straight, put on toast or drizzle it over fruit, um, just as another way of eating something that is theirs. And then something else that I had done was I had made chocolate and took moulds over and tempered and piped things into polycarbonate moulds and demoulded chocolates for them to try chocolate in their own form from their own beans from their country, which I know the global miles, it sort of came back around again, but Mm. a lot of them had never tried anything like that before. So showing them how to do things with their own product through education, um, they can do it in their own market stalls or their own homes or their own direct market home-based businesses, um, you know, they did that at the University at Sinu in uh, Honiara, which is the capital of the song. Doing things like that is so grounding for me and it helps bring you back to the cause of, like, why we're doing this. I had someone come into the shop early on in the piece of being opened and said, oh, yes, we're a social enterprise. We, we grow vanilla and we give farmers bags of rice while their crops grow for them to eat food. And I was like, oh, dear God, I couldn't wait till they leave. And then I spoke mm. to Brian. I was like... We cannot be pigeonholed in these sorts of positions. And there is also an abuse with what something is and what are we actually doing. Um, and it's, it's about that conversation that we can all have. Um, you know, yes, there's that feel-good, fuzzy business. People can buy a bar of chocolate and know they're helping others. Yes, this is true. But it's not, not why we're doing it. Um, there's a much bigger reason there and and the more we can help people it's simple things like even sending books back in education you know it's one of the things that you cannot even leave at a goodwill um, shop here Uh, you know all the different brands that do goodwill and 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 Mm. resell things you can't give them encyclopedia sets there's poor people in these undeveloped countries that you can send you can send things back whether it's clothing or even books where they want things for their libraries, where people can read and get a basic, um, you know, a little bit more education. So there is a lot more that we can be doing. And the more people that want to be involved, it doesn't have to be just buying chocolate. You could be getting involved in other parts of the chain that makes something move. There's a lot of things that I don't have expertise in that other people do that, um, you know, want to help. And, uh, you know, that's a good thing whether it's, you know, the South Pacific cause that we're doing or something else. So, 
Yeah. We're, you know, the more we can do, the more people want to be involved. It's the conversation that creates other ideas that we're not even aware of something else that could be done. Um, yeah. Well, Jessica, uh, what you're doing is extraordinary and um, you're an amazing individual. Your life has been so um, fascinating <laughs> to just hear glimpses of today. Uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Please keep in touch and look forward to hearing more about social and um, we'll talk again soon. Well, thank you so much and I really love what you're doing and I remember when it first came out when, when, the, when the COVID wave hit and I thought, what a good idea about bringing people together while we're sort of stranded as well and um, you know having a podcast where everybody can sort of tune in and realize there's uh, a lot more community going on and hearing other people's stories uh, has been so interesting and it has been it's been a very lovely company so it's nice that you're you're still going and I'm sure you're going from strength to strength so thank you for having having me on. We're here for good, hopefully, and we really appreciate those beautiful words. Um, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Take care. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.